great to be hanging out with you this Monday morning. I'm not sure how many of you would have watched the four CEOs of the major banks, Westpac, ANZ, Commonwealth Bank and the National Australia Bank, when they fronted up last week to a House of Reps committee. Uh, there seems to be many reasons for these hearings, uh, one of which is to avoid a royal commission into the bank scandals and rip-offs that have been taking place over many years. And, uh, and the opposition is calling for that royal commission. But what about us? What about consumers? Will the scrutiny on the banks help those who have been done over by one of the big four uh, at some point or other. Jared Brody joins us. He's CEO of the Consumer Action Law Centre and it's really great to have you with us. Thanks, Jared. It's great to be here, Kalia. So, Jared, remind us how we got here, how the, the bank CEOs came to appear before a House of Repres- Representatives Committee. Well, as, as Kalia mentioned, it really was, I think, um, in response to calls for a Royal Commission, primarily from the opposition leader, Bill Shorten, um, and also the fact that in August, when the Reserve Bank did uh, um, lower the cash rate by, I think, a quarter of a percent, um, the, the, the four big majors didn't pass the full amount of that cash rate reduction on to, to their home loan customers, and, and that got the ire of of uh, the Prime Minister and the Treasurer and hence they uh, invited the the four CEOs to Parliament and they appeared last week. Oh, look, I want to straight, jump straight on there about the uh, those interest rate cuts because when we heard from the CEOs last week, uh, Jared, they actually said that they don't even really pay attention to what the uh, Reserve Bank does with interest rates. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And and to be fair to them, um, I, I think it is right that the costs of their funds that they then lend on to customers does come from a variety of sources, and the cash rate is one determinant of that. But it's not the whole story. Um, they also uh, get money from deposits um, that that customers place with their banks, and there has been um, you know a level of competition there that's required banks to pay um, uh, as much as possible to to depositors, and also. So the international money markets. Um, but I think what I, I'd like to see for... I think what customers need to see there is greater transparency of what those costs are. Um, one of the things that consumer groups have been asking for is a sort of target um, interest rate uh, that would, uh, uh, you know, merge all those things together. And then we'd be able to judge um, the, the big banks and others um, in comparison to that target rate um, and, and know whether they are, uh, you know... Uh, preferring the interests of their shareholders or preferring the interests of their customers when they pass on those sort of interest rate changes. And so reflecting on the hearings of last week, did, did we learn very much? Was much achieved um, from that process? Look, unfortunately, I, I, I don't know if we did learn a lot. Um, there were some uh, positive things said by some of the banks, I think, around, um, you know, what they should do around reducing some uh, interest rates, like credit card interest rates for those sky-high ones of 20%. Um, but it wasn't a lot of detail um, uh, told us about what that would look like um, uh, for customers. Um, there was also a, a lot said around um, a, a, a disputes and, and the way in which disputes should be resolved with banks and, and I think a lot of questioning around a, a so-called banking tribunal um, which again uh, it's really unclear exactly what is being proposed by that um, uh, solution and, and I really um, you know it does raise concerns for consumer advocates because we don't want 
uh, dispute resolution with banks to become legalistic when we have our existing financial ombudsman service, which is pretty accessible for, for most consumer disputes. And yeah, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that, Jared, because um, it'd be good to hear what is currently in place and also um, where the tribunal idea came from. It sounds like it's um, coming from the government. Turnbull announced it and I was unclear whether this announcement was kind of being kept until after the uh, the CEOs had their say and was kind of brought out at the end or whether it actually uh, evolved uh, while the, the Prime Minister and, and uh, others were listening in to the CEOs. Well, uh, well, currently we do have um, a, a number of ombudsman schemes in the finance sector. So we've got the Financial Ombudsman Service, which has it's the biggest one in the finance sector. They deal with over uh, almost you know 40,000 uh, complaints each year from customers, and that's not just the big banks, but also the insurance companies, financial advisors, and so on. And the consumer can go to the ombudsman, usually just over the phone or in writing, um, and, and uh, get a um, either a, a consumer outcome or a, a binding determination on the bank. Um, and so that's really, I think, a, a, a good um, scheme which does in the main provide um, access to justice to people rather than having got to go to expensive courts and tribunals. There is also another uh, ombudsman scheme called the Credit and Investments Ombudsman which is smaller and its members um, are, are mainly sort of debt collectors and payday lenders and mortgage brokers um, uh, and that, that operates very similarly. Um, there's also the Superannuation Complaints Tribunal, um, which, uh, as the name suggests, um, is to deal with complaints with superannuation funds. Um, only a couple of months ago, the federal government announced a sort of review of these dispute resolution schemes um, with the idea that, you know, why do we have three um, which can drive inconsistencies and um, uh, perhaps doesn't cover the field? Should there be one dispute resolution scheme that provides access to justice for for consumers and small businesses um, and, and that, that review is ongoing and so it was, I guess with some surprise I, I had that um, you know that this idea of a banking tribunal was being uh, questioned to, to uh, was being proposed to the uh, the bank CEOs and then on Friday the Prime Minister sort of preempted that review and said yes we'll have a, a banking tribunal um, he did say that he would wait until the outcome of this review it's being headed by Professor Ian Ramsey from Melbourne University um, to determine what sort of forum that will be in practice uh, but it lo does look like we'll see some reform in that area. So um, if, am I correct in, in assuming that the tribunal would replace those ombudsman schemes that are currently in operation? Look, again, it's really unclear at this stage. I mean, uh, the preferred model that um, consumer advocates have suggested is that we would like to see an enhanced ombudsman service. The ombudsman model is actually a really good model for consumers because uh, it, it is quite accessible, as I mentioned. You don't have to turn up to a court or tribunal. You can just do it over the phone and, 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 and do it online. Um, and also the ombudsman service, importantly, um, is quite um, informal and in its decision-making, it looks at not just the law, but what's good industry practice and what's fair and reasonable in all the circumstances when deciding an ap appropriate um, resolution. And that really works to lift standards in the finance sector. The Ombudsman Service as well also has a responsibility around what they call systemic issues. So that means that if your complaint um, uh, sort of suggests that the same thing has happened to many other customers, um, the Ombudsman Service will look into that and make sure everyone affected by that issue will receive redress. Now, tribunals on 
the other hand, generally don't take that sort of approach and can be quite legalistic. Um, so so it's, I guess at this stage we're hopeful that what this banking tribunal that the Prime Minister has promised will actually be of the form of an ombudsman, if you like, rather than a formal um, legalistic tribunal. Jared Brody's with us. He's with the uh, Consumer Action Law Centre. And, I, I mean, well, another thing we heard a lot about... Uh, around this, these hearings, Jared, is that uh, these kinds of hearings will drive cultural change within the banks. And I wonder, should we as consumers uh, feel uh, good about that? Will this drive cultural change? And I suppose for those that have been ripped off by the banks or, or treated badly, uh, will we see an outcome uh, as a result of these hearings? Yeah, look, it's no doubt there has been cultural problems in the bank and we've seen, you know, many scandals where, you know, people have received financial advice and, and only to lose uh, their, their retirement savings or they've had, um, uh, you know, uh, in response to um, what the bank suggested, got certain types of life insurance um, and, and only to be, uh, when they finally need to um, uh, get you know, a payout on that life insurance because of a health issue or they've experienced any illness, then to find out that it doesn't cover them. Um, and, and I think what what has driven some of these issues has been um, a, a culture of sales in the bank at all costs, um, rather than on ensuring that products are suitable and appropriate for the customer's needs. Um, uh, and what's driven, I think, that sales culture, again, is um, the way in which bank staff um, are remunerated, the way they're paid, there are lots of commissions and, and product-based payments. Um, and, and so, you know, if you work for a bank, you, you know, you want to get paid, so you'll, um, you'll, you'll make that sale. Um, um, rather than think through uh, what is the best interest for that customer, is that product particularly right? So I, I'd like to see uh, the banks, you know, really reform um, that, uh, ensure that those commissions and, and product-based payments and incentives are removed, um, and I guess return banking to what it once was, which was a profession, if you like, um, that, that had, um, uh, you know, uh, good practices and, and, and honest and integrity at its core, rather than it being, you know, all about making the sale um, when, when you speak to the bank on the phone or you go into inside a branch. And I, I like the idea that you, you think that that's still possible, Jared. Look, I, I do. Uh, well, I'm always hopeful, I guess. I mean, I do. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm aware we lived in a, you know, a capitalist society, and, and the banks will continue to want to make money at, at all costs. But I, I think that the, you know, the, the level of attention being played to the banks at the moment um, is putting a lot of pressure on them. And in fact, the Australian Bankers Association, which is the peak body for all the banks, has announced its own independent review of this uh, remuneration and conflicted uh, incentives um, uh, paid to bank staff and it does seem that the banks are willing to, to change their practice in that area. Just a couple of week, weeks ago Westpac in fact announced that they'd remove all such payments from its branch tellers um, and, and ensure that they paid you know, a, a decent wage and uh, are paid for the service that they deliver not on the, the sale of particular products and I think that is one step to ensure that the culture of big banks can change. I guess that the unanswered question is um, what happens at the, the top, the senior executive, the level of bonuses and um, uh, uh, the culture of bonuses that exists in the big banks still does drive, I think, um, uh, the, those poor practices rather than doing what's right for the customer.
And I mean, part of the government's justification for, for having the CEOs of these um, large banks appear before a, a House of Reps committee each year was that that would be kind of a more rigorous process than a royal commission, which would kind of put them under the spotlight for a distinct period of time. And I guess having seen how it operated uh, for the first time this year, are you, I guess, optimistic that it will provide enough of a shake-up of, of the banking system to lead to meaningful change and make them more accountable? Look, I don't think that um, calls for a Royal Commission will halt because of the banks were uh, brought in front of Parliament. I think that will continue um, going forward. And I think a Royal Commission would be very different in terms of, uh, you know, it, it, I think in this, this parliamentary inquiry, the each CEO had three hours in, in front of the committee. Uh, a Royal Commission would be f- much more uh, in-depth th- than that. And, and importantly, it would give a chance for those that have been affected, those that have lost their life, savings or those that are, are living perhaps in, in you know, dire poverty because insurance payouts hasn't, haven't paid out, um, uh, that it would give them a chance to tell their story and I think hopefully contribute to um, some sort of healing perhaps um, uh, and, and a bit more intention to ensure that they do get some sort of compensation or redress where that's uh, appropriate. Um, uh, yeah, as I say, I think a Royal Commission will, uh, calls for a Royal Commission will continue um, uh, as long as long as it's, um, uh, uh, um, you know, politically appropriate to do so, I guess. And I, I mean, we have heard many times that we're more likely to uh, change our spouse than we are to change our banks, Jared. And one idea that came out of the hearings last week that was tested uh, and put to the CEOs was the idea of like a portable account number to make it easier for people to change banks. And I suppose we're experienced with this, aren't we, with regards to changing power companies and the like. And I wonder if this is the kind of change that, that you at the Consumer Action Law Centre would like to see happen. Yes, definitely. It's actually something that my centre's been calling on for many years. Um, in fact, I think the best example of, of where this has worked is in, in mobile phones. So when mobile phones first came in, you might remember that, you know, if you wanted to change provider, you actually had to change your Yeah, number. that's right. Uh, it feels like a long really- time ago. It does feel like a long time ago, but it made it really, you know, basically people didn't want to do that. And so um, it was a lot of hassle to change your number. And so there was a reform to require mobile phone providers to port numbers across between providers. And I think that if um, uh, the banks had a similar mechanism where you could port your bank account or a customer number across between providers, that would make it much easier for people to switch banks um, and therefore drive competition. One of the barriers to switching banks is that we all have um, a lot of uh, recurrent payments or direct debits uh, lined up with with various bank accounts or or credit cards. You know, our salary goes into a particular account. And the idea of having to switch banks and having to deal with your payroll and and change those um, in terms of the amount of paperwork is just overwhelming and so we just don't bother. And I think something like a a portable bank account or a portable customer number could really help overcome that sort of uh, lethargy, if you like, and, and drive competition to make sure the banks are are responding more readily to what customers want. Well, let's see what happens and uh, it's great to talk to you about it. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Carly. Thanks, Dylan. Uh, Jared Brady, he's uh, CEO of the Consumer Action Law Centre and they've got lots of info on their website if you want to chase up any of what we talked about today. Anyone who's had a baby or parenting or has teenage girls has probably been handed a copy of Kaz Cook's Up the Daff or maybe Kid Wrangling or if you have uh, teenage girls, uh, maybe her book Girl Stuff. But now she's written a version of Girl Stuff for girls aged 8 to 12 and she's dropped by to speak about it and it's really great to have you in, Cass. Oh, it's so nice 
nice to be here. What a Melbourne experience it is coming in to Triple R, wiping the pollen from your eyes, <laughs> jamming a pair of headphones over your black beret. I am ready to go. Yeah, and dressed in black. I know. I'm adjusting my black stockings. I don't know why I dressed like a Greek grandma, but there you have it. I do as well. Um, so why did you want to write for younger girls, um, Cassie? Was it sort of the market demanding it? or it was, a, it was a bit of that, although market's such a funny word, isn't it? It was just people going, oh, you know, I really want my younger girls to know about, you know, their first period and girl, uh, mean girls and bullies and all of that sort of stuff. But I don't really want to give them a book with a chapter that's got, you know, sex and drugs and alcohol in it. And that's fair enough. And, you know, when I wrote Girl Stuff for the Teenagers, that was a balance too, to write a book that covered from a 12-year-old to an 18-year-old. So this was a, another challenge. And it was actually a, a, a few booksellers saying, we've got people coming in saying, you know, I've got an 8 to 12-year-old. And also... You know, girls are uh, seeing the um, the first symptoms of, of uh, puberty and adolescence uh, down to the age of seven or eight now. So they're getting first periods, they're getting uh, body hair and they're freaking out. And really often their parents are freaking out too because you kind of think, OK, I'm done with toddlerville, so now <laughs> I don't have to worry about anything much until my kid hits the teen years. Well, it hits high school. Yeah, but... but actually it's happening much earlier and it's taking a while for society to catch up. And people get the wrong end of the stick. People are thinking, oh, this is a terrible thing. There's hormones in the chicken and it's causing people to start going through puberty. It's got nothing to do with any of that. It's got to do with genetics and better nutrition these days. And that's why girls are hitting puberty earlier. But it's still freaking them out. So really what I want to do with Girl Stuff 8 to 12 is normalise that for them. Tell them what's going to, hap- what's going to happen. Tell them, um, you know, what they'll need to do. And really allow them to get on with the business of being little girls. And so, so where do you start with a book like this? Did you start writing it and and then speak to girls or did you start by speaking to girls of this age group initially? Well, what I did was a survey of 4,000 girls aged um, 12 to 18 and actually quite a few younger girls entered into that survey as well. And that's what I did originally with the book Girl Stuff. And that also helped me build up this, you know, fantastic coterie of consultants, so medical, psychological um, doctors. And we are so lucky in Australia that we have world standard um, organisations and particularly in Melbourne, the Centre for Adolescent Health, um, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. You know, there's a lot of really smart people in in quite specific areas like, um, you know, dietitians or psychologists um, for the adolescent years. So I was really lucky. And, you know, what's been fantastic for me over my career in, in writing books that are non-fiction but also a bit funny and but also practical is that people are so generous. You know, I've only ever had one person go, I'm not going to help you unless you pay me. And so I was, I've only ever said get rooted once. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I, I, I'm going to pay you a compliment now. What I, what I love about your books, and I've, I've read numerous of them, is that you come at really everyday experiences uh, that are unique to a person, if, if you know it. Like the, it, it actually is quite a niche that all of us go through puberty at some point and maybe at a different age to others. But it's new and special to each of us and yet it's so everyday. Yeah. How do you come at a topic like that? How do you, how do, you do that? I guess I, I am really well aware from my own experiences and talking to girls that everyone feels like a freak. You feel like a freak if you go early into puberty. You feel like a freak if you don't. Don't go until you're 16. You know, if you're tall, you feel weird. If you've got big bosoms, you feel weird. And and the commercialised world 
encourages us to keep feeling freaky. And I guess there's a part of me that, as well as seeing the ridiculous side of when they try and do that to us, and it's, it's always great to laugh at that. You know, there's a part of me that feels really cross and bolshy about that. How dare they make women and girls feel bad about this? How, how dare they make dads feel bad about this? You know, and I, so I want to kind of take that on. And, and what I realised when I did the research, and actually, actually Dylan, you know, talking about making those connections with younger girls is that they want to be told what to do in in the sense that they're learning from us how to be girls, how to be teenage girls and then how to be women. And if we don't, because I used to think, oh, well, just whatever you like, darlings, you know, here's your smorgasbord. But if we don't say things like it's not okay for boys to say that kind of thing and it's not okay for mean girls to do this, it means they're not your friend, then they're going to get all their messages from advertisers from the net from porn that pours into their phone that people are you know other kids are showing them so that the the parents who are thinking if I don't talk about this to my kid they won't need to deal with it unfortunately that's a dream world now Mm. and that idea that oh now we're in such a permissive society and everyone knows everything that means girls are getting their information and I don't need to help them that's not true either because the information they're getting is from people who don't have their best interests at heart. So I wanted to make Girl Stuff 8 to 12 sort of specifically for them and smaller and not intimidating and something that's nice to hold and slip under your pillow so it's theirs so that in that way, Koya, they can feel like, um, you know, I know this is happening to everybody but this is my own personal experience and it's their own personal book with that info in. And I, I had this, I, I took it home and I have an eight-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old daughter and the 10-year-old just saw it and said, oh, did you get that for me? And I went, oh, actually, no, I didn't. <laughs> wrong, Mum. I think um, you'll but, find you're wrong But she there. took it straight away and went to her room and she absolutely mm. unselfconsciously read it. She didn't care who saw her reading this book. Yeah. Uh, she was just curious and I asked her her response and she said, well, I, you know, really, it just it's just all normal. And I, I imagine that that is a goal of yours is to make body changes feel normal because yeah, they are. Yeah, And because girls are made to feel like all of those normal things that happen to them, getting a period, getting sweatier, uh, getting body hair, those are the things that are it's told to them that that's yuck and weird and wrong. And so they have to buy products to deal with all of those things. Um, so it, and it's also the sort of things uh, uh, that bullies pick up on. Um, to be mean and so you know that that's a great response and I love it when I hear things like you know I, I people will tell me on social media or will filter back through friends of friends that you know a girl said oh look you know one of my breasts is bigger than the other but Kaz says that's okay <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's still a sense of unease among some people out there we saw it with safe schools and the, the kind of furor over that about addressing these issues with with younger people and particularly um, younger girls. Has there been any response at all um, in a negative sense, I guess, to you of, of writing this book? Look, I'm guessing that Corey Bernardi hasn't got it on and probably <laughs> George Brandis hasn't got room on his shelves for it. Um, look, honestly, I have to say that, that I have a universally pretty good reaction to these books and I think if anyone read them they would see how carefully they're written Mm. and also for example in girl stuff for the girls aged 12 to 18 I've got a whole section on how to say no to things and don't go in and do this stuff until you know this stuff Um, then you can make up your mind so 
in some ways, I suppose, it can be in the eye of the beholder. I can see how someone could read it and think, oh, well, she's telling them to say no to everything. And other people might see it as, oh, she's preparing them for what they might want to do. Um, but also, I think the people who are uncomfortable by this about this stuff... Um, don't tend to inform themselves. Mm. Um, they, they tend to turn away from information and that's the opposite of what I do. And th- that's the thing too, like th- this, the special stuff in Girl Stuff 8 to 12, for example, about being online and phones, you know, that's stuff that just wasn't around. Uh, even even 10 years ago, people would, would be laughing at the idea of giving an 8 or a 10-year-old a phone, but a lot, a lot more people are doing it now. And it does surprise me that people are giving a, a phone to a, a 10-year-old and going, you can go on Instagram, and not kind of realising that that's, that's almost like giving a kid a funnel and the whole world is coming down this funnel and all of those messages about what girls are supposed to look like and selfies and pouties and all of that stuff can really build up. And I've had parents say to me, oh, my girl is being bullied on Facebook every night. I say, how old is she? And they go, nine. And I go, why is she on Facebook? Why are you letting... Oh, but she's, she really wants to be on Facebook. So there is some stuff in the book for parents as well, but it's important to say that these are books for the girls themselves to inform themselves. Kaz Cook is with us. We're talking about girl stuff, uh, g- girls age 8 to 12. And I imagine trust is really big in this, Kaz. And I was, I, my daughter read this before I did and I was completely at ease with her reading your work should on her own. Should have brought her along. I should have. <laughs> she says school. <laughs> Day off. But I was really, and I, I imagine that uh, that trust has come from your past work, but I imagine it's also fundamental to being successful with a book like this. Yeah, look, you know, for, I don't know how long I've been writing books like this, but 25 years or something, I I am 103. Uh, But, you know, it's the same kind of, I I think it comes from having journalism training. Like I I started as a journalist at the age and, you know, the, the sense of terror at getting something wrong was so strong. So that's part of it, making sure that any medical or other information is is right, but also I update all of those books, particularly Up the Duff and Kid Wrangling, so that any medical information is new. And so I guess people have got to know me a, a, a bit. They know that, that the only thing I'm trying to sell them is a book, you know, like I never endorse anything or um, or get involved in promotion or, spon- or sponsorship or anything like that. So I think if people think about that, then they you, you do develop. And it's funny because people will come up and say, oh, look, I wrote you a letter once about, you know, Auntie Pam and she's fine now and I can't remember the letter about Auntie <laughs> Pam, but I go, oh, that's great, you know. And, and people I know do have, they've had my voice in their head, my writing voice in their head while they've been pregnant, for example. And that's a really intimate, important relationship, you know. It would break my heart to, to exploit that. But yeah, and I think I think you, I mean your humour, and I, I think the comebacks in this book are very funny. Like one that that really got into my daughter's head was when she said, "Look, if anyone comments on my body or breasts or anything like that." Um, what I should say back is, do you realise you just said that out loud? <laughs> yeah, that's one of my favourites too. <laughs> and it made her giggle, but also it was quite empowering. And yeah. I, I wonder, I mean, arming young girls with things they can say when the inevitable happens to them, like yeah. someone embarrassingly comments on them in a crowded room with family all around. Mm. Yes, probably it is an uncle or a grandparent or even a parent and that's... 
You know, that's really hard. And I think forearmed is always better. And, you know, I was thinking about that this weekend, this whole Trump business too, you know. We need to talk about boys, about what to say when they hear that kind of toxic anti-woman, uh, anti-girl, you know, horror. Um, we ne- Because if, you know what it's like, someone says something to you and you're just so shocked, you haven't got anything prepared. And that's what I wanted to help girls with. Um, but also, I think boys need it too. It's such a, you know, Trump is a giant tool. He's a teaching tool. People will be tuning, <laughs> tuning in to ever. see that at 12 o'clock today. I think that next debate. The debate, yeah. Oh, Goodness. it's going to be ugly. But oh. So is that is that a gap in, in knowledge or in publishing around young boys of, of how to kind of deal yeah, and respond is. to these sorts of things? Uh, absolutely. And people are always asking me, you know, why haven't you written boys stuff? And the truth is that I think... Well, my understanding is that publishers believe that it's not a book that would sell, that boys tend not to get their information from books. And also, look, I'm a former girl, Dylan, so I would be happy to collaborate with someone, but don't all ring at once. Um, <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like, there's, I know some stuff, but there's, it kind of really needs a, a bloke to, to write it as well, I think. Mm. Um, or at least, you know, be associated with it. But I, I just think parents um, are doing a fantastic job now. It's just parents are so much better now. Dads are great. You know, like I'm sort of really in awe of, of blokes who grew up in families without close emotional relationships with their dads but, it, but really want to do it differently with their kids. And I'm in awe of mums in particular who are passing on good values to to boys um, as well as girls and but we can't be experts at everything. Like, and that's why I want to write the books as well. You know, when I first started writing, for example, about vaccination, the whole thing had just started about where pe- that fraudulent survey and that guy, Andrew Wakefield, was um, saying that he'd connected um, the measles, mumps, with uh, rubella yeah, mm-hmm. vaccine with rubella. It's not true. It's wrong, but it's caused so much damage that that still ripples through. So if you're a parent who goes online, you hit a lot of that stuff. So I guess a lot of what I want to do is is sort of try and distill the good information and be able to get that out there. Was the, the, the section on families um, maybe the most challenging part of this book when I was reading through it? I, I mean, families are all different and, and I mean, that goes without saying, but... Uh, I had to when, say it. With, with, <laughs> with girls, you did have to say it to 8 to 12-year-olds. Yeah. Um, but with this age group, 8 to 12, I mean, that's when a lot of family breakdown happens, when, when kids are sort of heading towards that, that, that sort of high school period of their life. And I wonder how you came, how you tackled that. Well, you know, I think um, for me it was an extension of, you know, knowing that I had to write about friendship groups and bullies and that girls hit that sort of stuff earlier than boys usually and certainly um, sometimes in kindergarten in my own experience, you know, mean comments and stuff. And then realising that for these girls, the you know, the primary relationships in their lives are still their family and that, and their family isn't always great and, and um, not because uh, people are breaking up. You know, separated and blended families can be happy families but, as you say, there's a million different kinds of family. Um, but what I wanted to do was talk about, um, just give a little flavour to the girls of a better way to talk and a better way to... to um, to argue in a way if you if you disagree with parents there's, there's not as much of it in this book because it's it's more important for the the later 10 years but you know it, got, it can be really confusing for kids in families that are um not where people aren't breaking up but there's you know for example a you know a sarcastic undertone or something like that so it's really important for kids to know that those things aren't their fault um 
And also, look, you know, I found out once that some girls who um, had um, gone to the police about um, abuse within their family had done so because they'd read something in girl stuff. Mm. And they knew, they, they, someone had said to them, this isn't okay and you can reach out for help. And that was in, an incredibly moving and important moment for me and it made me realise that you have to be careful how you write things but it, it made me realise, I wasn't going to, but I put a couple of lines in this book um, because we assume that, that girls don't need, need to know about sex because they're not deciding to do it yet. Well, sometimes their deciding doesn't have anything to do with it. So, But mostly this book is extremely lighthearted and full of cartoons. Yeah, so, it is. But it's just that that's the challenge to, to you know, to make everything okay for girls in terms of there is a, there is a way to talk about this there is a way to that you can feel better about whatever is happening in your life and you know I've got lots of lists at the back about you know fun movies uh fun books and you know ways to be cheerful because I think often though books for girls are just all about be confident and in, feel independent okay bye <laughs> <laughs> well you don't just have um uh, links to great movies you also refer to great mathematicians and science and engineering or women uh, yeah, yeah, I yeah women. <laughs> a, few, a few role models for yeah, the girls who are, in there. who are told that you know girls can't do maths let's uh let's have a few engineering <laughs> and other stem stars up the back yeah well good on you all power to you Kaz Cook Girls Stuff for Girls Age 8 to 12 it's out now and um, published by Penguin and it's really great to have a chat with you and um, all the best with it lovely to see you many of you would know Helen Kaplos as a journalist of many years experience she's worked for the ABC and SBS as well as all the commercial networks and currently is the chairperson of the Victorian Multicultural Commission before taking that up though she started making a feature length documentary which has just recently been released it's called a life of its own the truth about medical marijuana and it follows her investigation into the medicinal use of cannabis for sufferers of a range of different conditions the film is screening this week at the greek film festival here in melbourne and to tell us more we have helen on the line thanks so much for being there Hey, thanks for having me and thank you for watching the film. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. It's, um, it's a really uh, emotional film. I wonder if you can start by taking us back to how you got interested in this subject. I got interested because I did a story um, when I was working at Channel 7 and I went into the story with a, a, a very preconceived idea of what I would find. I knew that there was um, some link between marijuana and pain relief and I, I guess that's what I expected to see and, I, and you know, and so uh, I, I probably had a fairly myopic view. I also had a fairly negative view of, of marijuana use and, and overuse and so on and the link to, to um, schizophrenia. So what happened as a result of that story was that my eyes were opened um, in a way that I never expected through the main subject of that story, whose um, name is Dan Haslam and who was a 24-year-old boy uh, fighting the last stages of bowel cancer. And so uh, what I found as a result of that was that there was a lot more conditions being treated with medicinal cannabis use. Uh, the quantums of which the drug is used um, are a lot smaller than I realised. Uh, it was in oil form, it wasn't simply people smoking a joint uh, and that there was an incredible body of work uh, being undertaken around the world which supported its use. And, I mean, you, you do uh, begin with your um, experience as a journalist at the beginning of this film, Helen, because you've been to lots of different emergencies and really traumatic events in your life as a journalist and a reporter. But what was it about Dan Haslam's story that really gripped you because it did in a way that other stories just hadn't before? 
That's so true. I mean, it was it just wasn't what I expected in the sense that um, you know it wasn't even uh, you know it was a subject matter that I didn't believe would resonate with me in such a big way. But what it did was really challenge my idea about healthcare and how. It's something that we can absolutely take into our own hands and it made me question the doctor paradigm. It made me question exactly how it is that, that, that we look at various treatments. And so the big thing about Dan that really, for me, transcended all other stories was that he was just incredibly relatable. He was a young kid, a very a country background, conservative parents. His father was the head of a drug squad, had very negative perceptions about marijuana himself. And he was just incredibly relatable, but an incredibly human in the way that he told his story, which was a really brave story for him and a difficult story for him to tell. And in Dan's particular case, uh, I mean, he's administered initially uh, medicinal cannabis for pain relief, which allows him to eat because he was off food after undergoing intensive chemotherapy. But but you uncover a range of other conditions for which medicinal cannabis has been used and has shown to be successful. That's right. So that was a big eye-opener for me, really. Uh, what happened was that in the course of the story, I started to see a, a really um, different landscape emerge, emerging from the one in which um, I thought existed already. And what I realised was that there was a number of applications for medicinal cannabis and that um, but it actually had the potential to affect almost every human disease state. And I'd never realised that before. And one weekend I was at the State Library and uh, came across all these interesting journal articles that related to some work that was being done in Israel. And I couldn't really understand the journal article, so I called my sister, who's a scientist, and asked her to sort of decode it for me and help me understand what it was that was actually happening. And um, that's how I came across a professor who'd been doing work on, on uh, medicinal cannabis for 51 years, who had discovered THC, but had also discovered CBD in the plant. And that's when I realised for the first time ever that we actually have an endocannabinoid system in our body that responds um, directly to the plant in the same way that opioids, um, that we respond to opioids or that the GABA system responds to, to alcohol. So um, I think, you know, from then on, um, I was just incredibly compelled to, to see its applications and how it was that, um, that it responded to a lot of neurological disorders, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and so on, a fibromyalgia that was just MS, uh, it was... Yeah, and I continue to hear stories of, of its wide-ranging applications. But the biggest eye-opener, I think, for a lot of us, and a lot of people would be aware of this, would be epilepsy. And so looking at um, children that, in, uh, that suffer from intractable epilepsy, which is the incurable kind of epilepsy, who are subject to often hundreds, um, if not thousands of seizures, taking really, really strong um, medication, which can in some cases kill them, uh, cause more seizures, cause incredible brain damage, can cause them to go blind. And then having um, this relatively um, benign um, substance in some cases, because in many cases it's administered as CBD oil, which is not using the psychoactive element at all or component of it. So it was just all of those things. I mean, once you start talking about it, it's, a, it's, it's difficult to stop in a way because uh, I'm, I'm perplexed that it's, um, that, it's, that it's had so many obstacles in legislation. Yeah, and and before we go to that, because uh, I mean the experts in your documentary, you know, really will, um, hold back from from saying to people that it's going to be a cure all. But how is it uh, that 
uh, medical marijuana hasn't been embraced like, say, morphine has, which morphine has a relationship to opium, yeah. and, and yet we've got opium, which is illegal, morphine, which isn't. Uh, how is it that uh, marijuana has really been caught up in the uh, prohibition and yeah. sort of legal criminal side right. of things, whereas other drugs yeah. haven't? Well, it really goes back to US days. Um, and if you look at what happened around hemp and um, legalisation and so on, um, and particularly um, the war on drugs when that was mounted, marijuana became, there was reefer madness and a number of, um, you know, propaganda-related um, materials that emerged at that time to really paint it as a very sinister um, a sinister drug. And, and if we are to look at, you know, even hydroponic um, marijuana, if it's taken in copious amounts between the ages of 18 and 25, but absolutely there can be an unmasking effect. So no one's denying that it can have um, absolutely a link um, to, to unmasking um, previous, um, uh, you know, um, psychotic disorders or having that kind of disposition um, towards it and being something that can be a trigger effect. However, um, what's important to really distinguish um, in this is that uh, much of that propaganda um, has been created to um, obviously, uh, uh, you know, cover up um, some of the medicinal benefits. Because what we're talking about is, is very small quantums of, of oil and oil that hasn't been manufactured to have 22% THC in the way that THC, in the way that hydroponic drugs are, are manufactured. So if you're looking at the pure whole plant of marijuana, it's actually um, far less sinister than, than, than what we imagine it to be. And the problem is that even in the US where it's legalized almost across half the US, it's still considered a schedule one drug, which means that a lot of the research can't be undertaken for large scale clinical trials and pharmaceuticals aren't interested in embarking on that research because there's simply um, no way that they can patent a plant. There's no benefits um, for it. Uh, towards that, and that's that's one of the problems with the fact that it's it's illegal in in many places. Um, has been in Australia um, historically that there's a black market of, of people accessing cannabis to use for medicinal purposes when they've had you know amazing results for themselves or for their family. Which means that there isn't the testing and, and quality control that you get Absolutely. when a drug is yeah. legalized and readily available. That's exactly the issue that we're facing. And even with the legislation and the great gains that have been made at the moment, it still has a long way to go because really what it's doing is targeting a small number of the population, whereas this has such a wide-ranging application. And I guess the way that I know that is that when I started filming around Australia is that I was absolutely besieged by people everywhere using it for all sorts of conditions I couldn't keep up with the level of interviews I remember going to Tasmania once and and people just came out of the woodwork a pharmacist was using it for you know his migraines and another person was using it for a very progressive form of MS and so on a brain injury you know there was sort of um, an incredible application and, and down there because they're able to grow more specialized strains um, there was probably some really different stories of um, and varied stories of success because they can use the different strains and, um, and what we know is that no particular one strain can, you know, we don't know exactly, because it's a whole plant therapy, uh, some people will respond differently to a particular strain. So some of the kids with epilepsy might respond more greatly to a higher THC strain, 
um, which is only three or four drops of it, mind you. It's nothing that can affect them um, in that way except for making them dozy. Um, and that's the worst, worst possible side effect that they can have. Uh, but we, we saw, you know, very, very different responses. And unfortunately, with the black market, you can you don't know what that quality control is. We don't know. It, it needs to be that specific um, that the agro technology has to have... Um, you know, a very, very specific set of controlling circumstances. So that needs to be um, grown under greenhouse conditions and monitored, and they have to be very, very similar um, strains. And so we need to know exactly what's in those strains, and then, and then somehow we build up the picture for how that tra- treatment might respond. And that's what they're able to do in Israel that we can't do here at the moment. Helen Kaplos. So people think, yeah. Sorry, we're Helen. Advanced, but we're not. Yeah. So. Uh, we're talking about um, Helen Kaplos's uh, documentary film called A Life of Its Own, The Truth About Medical Marijuana. And with all those considerations around quality control, uh, Helen, and also that people are largely self-medicating and trying everything they possibly can, particularly yeah. for their children which might ha- who might have intractable epilepsy and all the kind of mainstream medicines have been tried and, and, and failed in many instances. But how, I mean, from your point of view as a journalist, uh, how did you go about... Uh, promoting, I suppose, how people are using medicinal marijuana, but then also hold back on saying that it is going to cure all ills? Well, I guess that was an important part of having um, that balanced argument presented in the documentary. And the point was made um, a few times over and by the doctors themselves that it's not a cure-all. But what they were interestingly finding, particularly in Israel, where they were conducting human, the largest human trials in the world, and where the paediatric neurologists um, uh, made the observation that they considered it another medication. So it had very, very similar numbers to, uh, to normal medications. So it had that uh, 50% efficacy rate, um, if not above. Uh, if you have at least a 50% efficacy rate, then that means um, that it's good enough for that to be uh, to become an actual medication so and, and something that's formulated normally through a big pharma model. But unfortunately, in the case of medicinal cannabis, particularly when it's a, it's a whole plant, when you're not just using an extract, it's very, very difficult to patent something that can be put in a pill, for example. Yeah, and that's and I, been one of the big problems. And I wonder, I mean, now the Victorian government uh, is passing legislation to legalise access to medicinal cannabis for exceptional circumstances and I say that in in air quotes there and I I wonder what this might lead to will we see more trials Um, will we see a a growing a growing community of people being able to access and use this in a legal way well, that is the idea, but it will be interesting to see exactly um, how that plays out. I think the Victorian model um, is so far leading um, anywhere in Australia. New South Wales also has a really promising model, but it really depends on how those, what's been used in those clinical trials. And if we are talking about just extracts, then, then again, um, the, the clinical settings and some of those conditions may not be exactly what's happening in Israel, which is... Uh, looking at a, a whole plant and coming up with specific tra- uh, strains for specific illnesses. So I think it'll be really interesting to see exactly how that manifests, but it does look really promising. Uh, I know that they've made trips to Israel and that they're looking at that technology um, around um, how it's grown agriculturally and um, certainly investigating that, that line of thinking, which has been applied across some, so many hospitals already in Israel. And in fact, in Israel, they actually subsidise post-traumatic stress disorder for the soldiers. So they use it um, to, to treat post-traumatic stress disorder.
Well, it's a really, it's a really eye-opening film, Helen, and I'd um, I'd recommend it to anyone. I certainly learned a lot from watching it, and hopefully, it might lead to um, you know greater access for those who uh, could benefit from medicinal cannabis. The film is called A Life of Its Own: The Truth About Medical Marijuana. It's screening this Saturday, October fifteenth, four forty-five p.m. at Palace Como, along with a Q and A with Helen Kapalos, and that's as part of the Greek Film Festival happening near in Melbourne. Helen, thanks so much for joining us today on Triple R. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you.